you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 6 today. Uh, I don't have an introduction. Uh, the, uh, the scripture will speak for itself. Maybe if I wanted to try to make something up uh, so we can maintain continuity, uh, the introduction is this. Uh, if you want to hear the most scandalous take on the gospel uh, that you've heard me take yet, uh, you're going to find it here in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. It's offensive to the human ear. It's going to challenge many of you, including myself. And maybe if you're not a note taker, I'd encourage you to take notes today. Uh, and if you really don't want to do that, uh, you just want to let it sink in, I'd encourage you to go back on our YouTube channel, each and every one of you. And I'd encourage you to listen to this sermon just one more time. Uh, it, it might take two times for us to really begin to see just how immense of a truth it is that we're going to see today. It's Malachi chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 6, and we're going to go down a little ways, but I, I hope that perhaps uh, through 15 and... Uh, I hope that uh, uh, with, a, with the children's sermon to kind of open us up, uh, the main point should be obvious to you. It's really uh, verse 6 of the text. The Lord does not change, therefore his people are not consumed. But uh, the reason why this is so offensive, the reason why this challenges us so much is because even for us, even for these Bible believers that, that we find ourselves as gathering together, holding to the fullness of the weight of the revelation of God. Sometimes, most times, we still let ourselves sneak into the picture. And that is not what God has for us here. He reveals who we are and he reveals who he is. Let's pray. We'll get right in. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, open up our eyes. Unstop our ears and move today in our hearts and souls. Remind us of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi 3, starting with verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge 
or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, it stands and remains forever. And we can praise God for this word right here. Our main point, remember it, sear it into your soul. And if you leave hearing nothing else, remember this. Verse 6, the Lord does not change. Therefore, his people are not consumed. That's our first point. But let me tell you the other eight. That's right, I said nine points, but they're going to be quick, okay? Uh, so our nine points are as follows. If you're taking notes, you'll hear them again. Don't worry. The Lord does not change is point number one. Number two, he does not change because of sin, lack of knowledge, thievery, curse, testing God, times of plenty, popularity, and doubt. The Lord changes for none of these things. And we'll see that here in our text this morning. First then, really the basis, the foundation for how we will move is that the Lord does not change. Verse 6, by far, this is point blank with full seriousness. I am convinced of it. One of the greatest truths of the entirety of Scripture. In reality... This one Bible verse defines all of the illustrations about stability that we find in the Bible, in Christian songs, in poetry, and in prose throughout the generations. My rock and my redeemer, my firm foundation, the cornerstone, the tree planted by streams of water, the good shepherd's protection. Do not be anxious and on and on and on. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, right? If you wanted to think about all the blessings of Scripture, all of these things hinge on the truth that we see here. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. But have you really grasped the depth of this truth, of this verse, of this saying? It's so simple. It's concretely logical. And it forces us to consider a few of our preconceived notions about who we are and how we got here. So let's go to point number two. The Lord does not change. Therefore, his people are not consumed even when we sin. The first part of verse seven. Y'all are a sinning people and I am a sinning pastor. That's the reality of who we are. First part of verse 7 defines us pretty good. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I challenge any of you to prove me wrong on that, okay? Uh, these people here are these people here, okay? That's who we are. If you can't say that you are a sinner with absolute certainty, then you are not one of God's followers. It is a baseline, fundamental, uh, 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 obvious moment of, of recognition of why we needed the gospel in the first place. And even more, it's why the gospel is so offensive. Because God steps out of what we believe is right and just and doesn't consume us. Which is what we deserve for breaking all these commandments and statutes. 
But he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives that to Jesus, by the way. And he does not consume us. And he keeps his word. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, my people are not consumed. Point number three. The Lord does not change and his people are not consumed even for lack of knowledge. That's the second part of verse 7. If I were to give out paper and pencil and ask a couple questions, I wonder how we would feel about ourselves. Imagine if you pulled out, right? Everyone look under your pew, right? And you pull out your paper and pencil and you say, oh man, what are we about to do? And question number one is articulate the gospel in one sentence or less. How are you feeling right now? One sentence. What's the gospel? What's the good news? Where did you find that? Here's another one. It seems like it doesn't go, but you will see. Why do we baptize infants? We find ourselves in a fellowship that holds to the fullness of the scriptures. We've got first prayers, sisters with us and brothers. Our denomination holds to the reality of the baptism of infants. Why? If you had paper and pencil, what would you say? Would y'all feel confident? Here's a crash course in what I'm trying to get you to. Here's three stories, true stories from the Bible of three different individuals who we clearly see the Lord working in a salvific way. Cornelius, find him in the book of Acts, heard the gospel from the apostle Peter and he believed. John the Baptist was carried into the presence of Jesus. If you know the place I'm referencing, John the Baptist was in the womb and so was Jesus. And John the Baptist leapt for joy at the working of the Holy Spirit in his soul. There's no other way to leap for joy in the presence of the Lord than for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Acknowledging what he would articulate some 30 years later, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That one that, that he's not even worthy to tie the strap of the sandal on. Here's another one, a thief on a cross. Moments left to live. A life that clearly got him crucified to begin with. Believed in Jesus, who was crucified next to him. And if you recall the very literal words of Jesus, you will dine with me in heaven tonight. I'll see you there. Which of these men was saved by God and how? God doesn't change because of our lack of knowledge. God is the one who gives his people knowledge, especially saving knowledge. Knowledge never saves you. God saves you. And if you're founding your salvation on intellect alone, God has words for you. And it's the second part of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. The intellect says, how can I do that? 
how? Don't you see me? And God says, yes. But I am a God who does not change. Return to me. And I will return to you. We're already in the realm of offensiveness. But let's keep going. Point number four. The Lord does not change. Therefore, his people are not consumed for their thievery. Verse 8. Here it comes, right? You know, this whole sermon series was probably planned just so I could do this right here. A giving sermon, right? Y'all have been waiting for it. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Well, I've got some words. In my entire ordained life, I have never preached any other kind of sermon than a Jesus sermon. And we're not stopping that now. There's no such thing as a giving sermon. That's a joke, a farce, a falsehood that we should do away with. No, the reality is much different. It's true, God has commanded 10% of our finances for the earthly functioning of His kingdom growth. And yes, this is a starting point that is well attested by Paul in his missionary journey, which by the way was a collections journey as he was on his way to Mother Church Jerusalem where there were many, what? Widows, orphans, and others who were in desperate financial need. But even so, even with all of that, that's actually not what's being addressed in our text this morning. In fact, it's the very opposite. Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. What if we break the command? What if we don't give? What if rather than giving, we take? Victor Hugo answers these questions in a tremendous illustration from his book, uh, Les Miserables. Uh, uh, don't uh, kill me for my French uh, pronunciation. Uh, but uh, there is, it's a French professor that I just did that to, okay? Uh, but there is uh, this wonderful book. Many people know the musical. I like the musical. I love the book, okay? And in the book, you see uh, a representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God the Father's love for his people. And it's represented, surprise, surprise, by a priest and a thief. Jean Valjean was down on his luck. He had stolen so much food for his, his family to survive and he got caught and he was given a number 24601 which was, it was what he was identified by. He gets out of jail but it's like he's got a stamp with the number on it. Who is it? Is he Jean Valjean or is he 24601? Everywhere he goes, he shows them his, his visa, right? His passport, his criminal record is on it. He can't get a job. He can't find any work. And so he finds himself in desperate need, brought in to uh, this parish home of a priest. And this priest gives him food and gives him warmth and allows him a place to stay, a reprieve, a safety net. And what does Jean Valjean do? Out of desperation, he steals the silver candlesticks and he's off in the night and he's caught 
And when he returns, apprehended by the authorities, and they tell that priest, look what we found. Candlesticks. He has stolen from you, right? All the silver in a bag. And the priest says, he didn't steal that. I gave it to him. It's not stolen. Fare thee well and be blessed. What mercy. What love. And yet what a pale image of the reality of a God who would look us thieves of him in the face and say, I have sent my son for you. Come, my son or my daughter, and be blessed by me. No, it's not a giving sermon where we give. It's a giving sermon where God gives. That's the reality. Period. Point number five. The Lord does not change. Therefore his people are not consumed in the midst of a curse. Verse nine. It's true. The Lord will not consume his people for sin. But there is certainly repercussion for sin. For instance, I know plenty of Christians who struggle with the sin of drunkenness. Plenty of those have even gotten a DUI. Just because the Lord hasn't consumed those Christians doesn't mean that they don't have a mark on their license because they got a DUI. And it doesn't mean that they uh, have things that they've got to complete and even having their license revoked. Uh, for whatever you know, parts and pieces are involved. There are consequences, repercussion of sin. And so we see a curse in our passage, a consequence of God's people's sin. Verse 9, they are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But even in the midst of a curse, God is not consuming his people. Think about it. Discomfort, consequence, and even punishment is not consuming or forsaking. In many cases, this is God's remedial discipline. You could even say that it's consuming the sin rather than the sinner. I'm reminded of a well-known hymn in the Thomas household at least. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This is a massive blind spot for many Christians. Do you blame God for the consequences of your own sin? Have you praised God for his unchanging love towards you, the sinner in the midst of the sin? Consider the blind spot. Almost all of us have it. Point number six, the Lord does not change, therefore his people are not consumed. Test him. Verse 10. But wait a second. Let me, uh, let me qualify. Is testing God a sin or a command? The answer is yes, depending on the situation, clearly. Jesus quotes, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Satan and tells us not to put God to the test like God's people did at Massa, right? It's what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about, where, where the people sinfully uh, put God to the test. So, so what's the difference here? 
God is telling us to do it. Rather than a faithless act like we see referenced in Deuteronomy 6, God is commanding us to exercise our faith and behold our God. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God doesn't change. And he wants us to know that. It's not a secret. It's a trumpet blast. At the same time, this isn't a magic trick. I want you to be well aware that if you were to all of a sudden give 10% of, of uh, the money, uh, of your money that you make to the church, in all likelihood, if you really gave that full tithe, most of you in the room would have less money. There's no need to cut around it or to feel uncomfortable. We're the ones doing it. It's the reality of what we're doing. The point is not that we would have more money. The point is that as we function more in line with our God by the movement of the Holy Spirit, our testing of God will only increase our faith as we behold His faithfulness to provide and to grow us, which will only increase our contentment with less of the world and more of God which will only increase our joy in Christ Jesus, which will only increase our peace on earth as we sojourn towards that heavenly place, our true homestead. Test God rightly. Align your action with your confession, what it is you say with your lips. Do it and see what God does. Point number seven, the Lord does not change. Therefore, his people are not consumed in times of plenty. Verse 11, when do we cry out to the Lord? Is it when things are going well? Or is it when things are going poorly? Why don't we use our children as an example? I'll use my children. Uh, Mary Emeline and Isaac and Carwin have a giant climbing dome in our backyard. I did not realize how big it was when we got it for them. Uh, they had to grow into it. They are still growing into it. Uh, it's quite quite tall when you climb up on it. Uh, and so uh, when you climb on it, uh, sometimes uh, uh, there's a call for me, but not usually. Do you want to know when I get the call? Uh, we'll use Isaac's bloody nose as an example. It's when you fall off the climbing dome, right? Uh, when, when you're in need, when things go poorly, the holler goes out, Daddy! Right? And I go running, thinking somebody's going, there we go. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca's thanking me right now. Uh, and so we see this. Uh, we see this reality with our children. It's easy. But of course, this translates to the larger trials of life, of sickness and suffering and tumult. But what if we're not falling? What if we're not experiencing the need to cry out to God in desperation? Do these times of plenty come from our skill or from the Lord who orders our steps? And shouldn't we be acknowledging God even more so in the plenteous times, the plenteous moments. Verse 11, I, as God, will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Thankless 
Pride in times of plenty is extremely dangerous. Why do you think Jesus looked on the rich young ruler with compassion, with love? Remember that rich young ruler? What did he say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark chapter 10, verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If you're familiar with the true story, the man in times of plenty went away sorrowful. Nevertheless, the Lord does not change and his people are not consumed even in those thankless times of plenty. Jesus looked on that man with love and extended to him the good news and he does the same for us. To connect our last point with this one, test him. Point number eight. The Lord does not change, therefore his people are not consumed while popular. We're almost there, by the way. Verse 12. I had a problem in high school. I had a problem. For some reason, I boycotted Levi jeans. Uh, this was a time when uh, the mall had a resurgence. American Eagle. Abercrombie. Hollister. Oh, it was a resurgence. And in my uh, fickle and hypocritical sense, I thought, that any other gene besides these mall genes would make me so uncool that I would never, ever, 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 ever have friends. My mother was very gracious and kind, by the way. My father, not so much. <laughs> uh, uh, however, let me compare this to my darling and much more genuine girlfriend at the time. I couldn't understand because she would jean shop. And uh, by the way, I approved this with Rebecca before I'm giving this illustration. Uh, she would jean shop but would look for a higher quality. And I'm thinking, who cares? Uh, she would look for the right fit. Right? You need a gene that fits. I said, no, you need the brand, right? No, you need a good gene that fits. That does carry with it certain brands, right? They fit differently, apparently. I don't know. I didn't care. And so uh, there was a difference, right? Uh, there was a genuineness in my wife now, my girlfriend then, and there was a hypocrisy for me. I was, I was floating after that which was popular. I'm about to make a jump here. I think I can connect it. Uh, Christian historians love to argue about Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire and his Edict of Milan, which happened in 313 AD. Here's what I mean. That Edict of Milan uh, popularized Christianity. It uh, made it no longer persecutable. There was a moment where, because of this edict, Christians could worship freely. In fact, it was as if Christianity was adopted by the empire itself from a spot of weakness to a spot of power overnight in 313. Oh Lord, may it happen again, right? Is what some of you might be thinking. But it carried with it some negatives. The same could be true, uh, truly said about America, by the way. Which is better of these two? Everybody goes to church because of culture. 
But many either don't believe or are so far to the fringes of faith that it's confusing to tell if that faith exists at all. The church is certainly more impure. And yet, the church has huge numbers, giant finances, and immense worldly power. That sounds good, doesn't it? Or, only those who believe in Jesus go to church because no one in the culture wants to. The church is certainly purer, but far smaller in number. Weak finances and little to no worldly power. At least as it would be defined by the world. Regardless of where your opinion falls on this issue, there are opinions. I believe there are some theological arguments on both sides. But regardless of where you fall, popularity certainly brings the danger of fake commitment. Just like my gene hypocrisy. Look to the trends and the fads of society. If this doesn't make sense to you, because it's still happening to this day, guaranteed. But isn't it so good that the Lord doesn't change? And his people are not consumed when we fall into popularity. Rather, you could say that he used that, and he did, to explode the Christian church, as in the Roman Empire in 313, or even America in the 19th and 20th century. Verse 12 of our text, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here we go, our last point. Point number nine, the Lord does not change. Therefore, his people are not consumed even when we doubt. Verses 13, 14, and 15. Have you ever struggled with doubts about God? About his word? I talk to a lot of you about your doubts. Don't act like you don't have any. <laughs> Maybe you're struggling right now. I know that many of you are struggling right now. What does your doubt look like? Is it a head doubt or a heart doubt? Head doubt is that frustration with God's bending of what you conceive to be the natural order of things, timing. When, when was the world created? When, when was it not? What, what's the timing on this? God created all things out of nothing. How can that be? What does that mean? The flood. The flood? What? Waters over all the lands? What does that mean? How does that work? The flood and Noah's ark and all of the miracles that we find. God's, God's bending of what you conceive to be the natural order. Head down. Heart doubt is the frustration with God himself because you had tragedy with no miracle. Suffering and trial came your way, and it doesn't seem like it's easily resolved. There's a problem with evil that you just can't get out of your head. Or there's a problem because God called the thing that you find pleasurable or profitable, well, God called it sinful, and that you shouldn't do it. Both head and heart doubt play out the same way. A de-emphasis on God and a super-emphasis on self. The mode of operation is not marked by the question, how can I glorify God? Rather, it's marked by the question, how can I glorify myself? How can I please myself? How can I make myself feel better for one more day and then redo it again tomorrow because it's just not enough? What's the thing that's going to get me through the day today? Many of us live our lives this way. 
I know many who find themselves in the depths of doubt, feeling like there's no way out, with some so deep down the rabbit's hole that darkness has become companion. And they're watching their fragile faith fail before their eyes. So is doubt the opposite of faith? Is it the consumer of faith, like darkness consuming light rather than light opening up darkness? Is it the killer of faith? Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And it's plain to see that these words against God are words of doubt. That's what you get in after that question from the Lord, or that statement from the Lord. It's, it's the people and what they're saying. It's their doubt laid bare on the page. So why are these things hard for God? They're hard because a father is watching his children miss the mark. A father is watching his children inflict wounds on themselves. Doubt is not condemnation or faithlessness. Rather, it's a weakness of the flesh due to the fall, our very corruption. And really, this ninth point, this concept of doubt, it sums up Exactly why the reality of God's unchanging character is one of the greatest truths in the entirety of Scripture. Because when it's up to us, of course we're going to doubt. Just look at me. Just look at yourself. Look at your sin, your thievery, your false popularity. Look at your times of plenty. And why wasn't it enough? Look at all of these things that have been laid out. What are we to do? What are we to do? Have you considered it? Really? Have you gone there? Really? Have you scraped away the world? And for a moment looked at the reality. And it's there. In that moment. That we see the fullness. Of who God is when he says that I the Lord. Do not change. Of course God's people will give. Of course God's people will love. Of course. And of course God's people won't give. Of course God's people won't love. Of course. What do you think this is all about? What are we doing? Why are we here? If not to worship the God who saved us. To recognize who he is in his unchanging character. We must be ones who consider these things. This is the community changer. This is the numerical growth moment. Not for us, but for God. And for his glory. For he alone deserves it. This is the freeing moment. 
as we can say yes and amen to our anxieties, our depression, our frustration, our emotional instability, our physical instability, our spiritual instability, and say yes, yes, yes. I've been accustomed to this, well accustomed to it. For me, it's been 32 years. Ask me how old I am. What about you? And now how long have you known your Savior? Maybe it's just, but for a moment, now. Perhaps you've just met him. Maybe it's just a few minutes. Maybe it's been years. And this is a good reminder of the Father that who, who has been waiting. Return to me, and I will return to you. A God who does not change. A God who does not consume. Now that'll preach. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we're about to sing the same words that we heard proclaimed. God, you are good and you are unchanging. And great is thy faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.